Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 9, which is titled The Six Sense Bases. Today we're going to be discussing chapters 31 through 40, which are 10 individual chapters that you could have read before class or after class that have the words of the Buddha. And these are mostly very short. Some of them are half a page or a page long. It's not a full chapter like 20 pages or 50 pages, which you might be used to. They're very short chapters. So you have the words of the Buddha. You have a reference back to the Pali Canon if you'd like to go see the longer discourse. And then you have some teachings from me to help you further understand and certain things to think about as it relates to the Buddhist teachings. And today we're actually going to be reading through these as we go. So students that are in Zoom, if you guys would like to volunteer to read a specific chapter, we'll have students read each individual chapter. And then I will share teachings on that particular chapter. And then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have. If this is your first time joining the Pali Canon English Study Group, welcome, pleased that you're here. You can download all these books for free. You can also take that file and go print it. And you can also decide if you'd like to get a printed version from Amazon, whatever the equivalent is in your country, you can order these already pre-printed. And that way you'll be able to learn and progress, maybe reading the chapters before class and you'll come to class with certain questions. So you just need to go to buddhadailywisdom.com and you'll see the links for the downloaded books. And you also have the links to amazon.com. But if you're in a country that isn't served by amazon.com, you can use the equivalent. You know, in Germany, there's Amazon and Italy and Australia, Japan, and all these other places. They have their own version of Amazon. So the way that we start our classes is we start with a brief meditation just to prepare the mind for the class so that you can clear out the mind kind of like a little top up just a short little meditation to prepare the mind for the class and to be able to retain the teachings for longer so that you'll be able to then apply the teachings in your daily life. The people who join this program are typically meditating two or three times a day and they have a really well-established meditation practice. And this meditation that we do prior to class is just like a little top-up. It's not really a full-out meditation the way we might do when we're meditating by ourselves. So if you guys would like to take a meditation position, we'll go ahead and just do some very light guidance just to start our meditation today. And then afterwards, we'll move into studying chapters 31 through 40. So if you'd like to just start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose and establish your breath. I'm going to do some chanting and you're welcome to chant along. And then afterwards, I'll come back with some very brief guidance. 
to the exhale, breathing out through the nose, experiencing the full breath. Fixate the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Whenever you observe that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out.
पीवा सवखता तमो दामी सांखो We'll go ahead and transition over to our class to start reading the words of the Buddha in these chapters. We're in volume 9, starting in chapter 31. Our moderator, Miranda, is going to kind of conduct the class in terms of ensuring that we have people to read each chapter. And then after you guys read, I'll teach any teachings to kind of further elaborate on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. So we'll go ahead and turn things over to all of you. Uh, yes, sir. Um, could we have Jan read chapter 31, please? Thank you, Miranda. Only with sense control that one can fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness. Monks, save one and not give up six things. He cannot become one who resides in reflecting on the body as body. What six? Excitement in activity, excitement in gossip, sleep, company, being without a guard on the sense doors, and immoderate in eating. Surely, monks, save one and not give up these six. He cannot become one who resides in reflecting on the body as body. But one surely can if one gives up these six. All right. Thank you, Jan. 
So here, the Buddha is talking about the four foundations of mindfulness, which are the bodily sensations, the feelings that are experienced in the mind, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects that are deeply rooted in the mind, like ill will and central desire and complacency and things like this. In order to get to enlightenment, as part of the full path, the practitioner, we need to develop awareness of the four foundations of mindfulness, that that first foundation of bodily sensations. You need to be developing the ability to observe the bodily sensations that happen prior to the feelings of the mind, like anger coming into the mind. There's a bodily sensation that's happening in your body that is alerting you to this arising anger. The anger has not yet made it to the mind, but yet there's this bodily sensation or this sadness or boredom or loneliness or fear even happiness, excitement, elation, and thrill. There's some bodily sensation that is occurring before it becomes feelings in the mind. And then if you miss it as a bodily sensation, it becomes a feeling in the mind. And then if you miss it there, it affects the condition of the mind for multiple hours or days or a couple of weeks. And then it starts to form this mental object, which are much more difficult to uproot and eliminate from the mind. So in order to get to enlightenment, you have to be aware of these bodily sensations, which the Buddha is talking about body as body. One who resides in reflecting on body as body. What he's saying is one who is aware of these bodily sensations, because he also talks about someone who's aware of these bodily sensations that discontentedness is arising before it becomes a feeling in the mind. He talks about how this person who is aware of the bodily sensations and can easily cut them off and let it go there, that they're very close to enlightenment. So you would need to develop the mind to have awareness of these bodily sensations through your meditation, through training the mind, through breathing mindfulness meditation, and then by training the mind to let go, let go, let go, and keep coming back to the breath, you're more easily able to train the mind to not only be aware of these bodily sensations, but then when you observe anger is arising and you see this bodily sensation, you can cut it off and let it go there. And the more actively you can do that with all discontent feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, then the mind is getting close to enlightenment. And the Buddha is saying here is if you don't give up these six things, if you still hold on to these six things, you can't develop this awareness of the bodily sensations. So, i.e., you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment if you didn't eliminate these things from the mind, which is excitement and activity, gossip, sleep, company or people who are visiting you, being without a guard of the six sense bases or the sense doors. Whenever you see the Buddha talk about a guard of the sense doors, he's talking about mindfulness. The sense doors are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind. And through the eyes, you see certain forms. Through the ears, you hear certain sounds. Through the nose, you smell certain odors. Through the tongue, you taste certain flavors. Through the body, it comes into contact with certain physical objects. And then there's certain mental objects in the mind. And the way that you gain control and discipline over the mind is that you have this guard, this mindfulness or this awareness of mind of these six sense bases or these sense doors, because that's what the mind is craving through. When we talk in the Four Noble Truths about craving, desire, attachment, and this mental longing with a strong eagerness, the mind is longing through these sense doors. We don't talk about it in the 
Four Noble Truths because there we're just giving an introductory talk on what's causing the discontentedness. But now later, as you get deeper into your practice, you start to understand that what the mind is doing is it's longing and yearning, having this craving, desire, attachment through these sense doors. And you're either going to experience this agreeable contact through the sense doors, which produces pleasant feelings, or you're going to have this disagreeable contact, which produces painful feelings. And what you're trying to do is guard that with mindfulness, that you're aware that the mind is doing this. And then when you see it, longing and yearning for pleasant feelings through any of these sense doors, then you cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back. Because as long as the mind is longing for these pleasant feelings, it's only a matter of time before these painful feelings are experienced. And then there's this moderation of eating that the Buddha teaches. During his lifetime, he only ate one time a day prior to noon. Nowadays, people will kind of eat about twice a day, but there's nothing wrong with eating three times a day either. But when you're eating, you would like to just kind of eat in moderation. Whereas if you're gorging yourself on food, then this is the senses. This is the the eyes, the nose, the flavor of the tongue, you know, having this central desire, longing and yearning to kind of gorge on food. So person who's moving closer and closer to enlightenment, they'll tend to eat smaller portions of food. They'll eat in moderation. So eliminating these six things, the Buddha is saying, okay, then you're kind of able to develop this four foundations of mindfulness and particularly being able to observe the bodily sensations. But if you hold on to just one of these things, then he's saying, okay, you're not going to be able to develop this awareness of the bodily sensations. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. On Facebook, Amina asks a question about excitement and activity. A friend who we had not seen for a couple of years came for a visit. At first, the mind was really excited and felt the stomach get butterflies. And then at that point, I started to say to the mind, no matter if the visit happens or not, be content regardless. It worked this time, but oftentimes it does not as it feels hard to let go of happy excitement, any guidance would be appreciated. Yeah, what you did is perfect, Amina, is that you became aware of the bodily sensation, which is the butterflies, because you were having this excitement in company, you know, people coming to visit you, and maybe you were having excitement in the activities that were going to be undertaken when this person comes. And when you observe that, you cut it off and let it go. That's the way to do it. There's nothing else other than that. Because if you are training the mind and breathing mindfulness meditation and you're practicing generosity, this is training the mind to let go, let go, let go. And now you're becoming aware of that and you just do that more and more frequently as you see that occurring. And then now you eventually get to the point where the mind is so well trained and so disciplined that it won't even have those butterflies or that arising of conditioned pleasant feelings or this conditioned excitement when somebody's coming to visit you or the activities that are coming. If they come, you're completely fine with that. If they don't come, you're completely fine with that because you know it's impermanent and it's not going to always happen the way you want it to happen. So you get rid of that want, you get rid of that expectation, that mental longing and strong eagerness. Someone says they're coming to visit. Oh, great. That would be wonderful. It would be 
very pleased to welcome you to our home or whatever you say, right? That'll be a very enjoyable time together. And if they come, then you enjoy that time together. And then when it's done, it's done, it's over with and you move on. And then if for some reason they call you prior to coming, like, oh, we can't come. This other thing came up. We're not able to come. Oh, no worries. We can get together another time because you already understood when you made the plans that this plan may or may not happen. This plan is impermanent. So if you get ahead of the curve like you did and not allow the mind to cling and crave and yearn for that person to come, when they can't come, then your mind won't be shaken up by that. So that's the real key here is to be aware of those bodily sensations that the mind is trying to have craving here. There's trying to be these pleasant feelings that are arising. The mind wants to get all excited, but you're not going to let it. And then when you knock that down more and more, the mind won't do that because it's been so well trained because you keep pulling it back and pulling it back. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, Jan has her hand raised. So let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, teacher David. Um, in my family, we recently experienced the death of a family member. And I feel intellectually fine about it. Um, I don't feel distraught or upset particularly, but I've discovered that when I'm meditating, I start to cry and I just cry. I can't cut it off. I can't stop it. it kind of comes and goes. So I don't know if you have any guidance for me about this. Yeah. So just keep going. This is normal. And you know, it's not that you want to hold back your cry, right? Like you've, I'm sure had that really good cry that after you're done, you're like, oh my goodness, I feel so much better. So holding on to the crying in the sorrow, that's not what the Buddha is teaching is to hold on to it. He's not teaching that. He's teaching to let it go so that if you feel that, okay, sorrow is coming to the mind and you cry, okay, just let it go. You didn't catch it as a bodily sensation. It's coming into the mind as a feeling. Just cry, cry, let it cry, let the mind cry, and then eventually you'll get to the end of that and maybe you need to cry five, 10, 20 times, who knows? But each time when you're done, just be done with it and move on. Mm -hmm. The ideal thing would be, you know, to be able to cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation. But since there is craving there, there's some kind of attachment to this person. That's what's arising these feelings. And sometimes you just need to have a really good cry. And that's a way to let it go. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me share this because it's connected to Mina's question, too, is, you know, if there's craving there and you experience the arising of the butterflies like Amina talked about, or in your case, Jan, you're experiencing this arising of the crying, you know, that's not the problem, right? The, the rising of the butterflies isn't the problem. The, the crying isn't the problem. The challenge is that the, there's craving, desire, attachment there. The butterflies and the crying is the symptom. It's telling you, the mind's telling you, and the body's telling you, hey, there's some craving here. And then when you become aware of it, that's when you take action to cut it off and let it go. But because craving is gradually worn away, you can't just snap your fingers and, and eliminate it. That's why that meditation is there two or three times a day to gradually wear that craving away and all other cravings. 
And that's why you're always practicing generosity throughout your day, practicing generosity in multiple ways, because you're gradually wearing away that craving. So if you observe that there's a rising of craving, as you know, you're not a bad person, you haven't done anything wrong, you're not horrible at the path to enlightenment, you're not horrible at meditation. It's just where the mind is and you can take note of that, like, oh, I'm having attachment to this person. Okay, I need to get rid of that, I need to clear that out. Or in Amina's case, she had maybe attachment to her friend or getting visitors or the activities that are going to occur. Okay, I see that. Now let me cut that off and let that go. So the fact that these things are arising or just bringing to your awareness that these things are there, that this craving is there, that's the real uh, problem, the real challenge. And now when you observe it, now you take action to eliminate it over consistent periods of training. And then you just gradually wear it away. It's almost like you've got this big pile of mud in your front yard and you got to just keep spraying water on it until this mud just gradually wears away and wears away. There's no way to instantly get rid of this mud, right? You have to just keep dosing it with water and water and water and just keep dosing it and eventually it just gradually wears away and it's completely gone out of your front yard. And it's the same thing with these cravings is you just become aware of those bodily sensations, you become aware that it's causing these feelings in the mind, you try to more actively cut it off and let it go, but you're not gonna always be able to do that right away or easily, particularly if the cravings are very deeply rooted or if the attachment's deeply rooted. But then you keep with that ongoing meditation of breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, and this is squirting the water on that craving and gradually wearing them away over a consistent long-term period of time. Thank you, sir. Also, when it comes to being immoderate in eating, it has been observed that throughout our life and even really day to day, the amount of nourishment that the body needs is impermanent, it changes. And when we have situations like personally starting this new job, the physical activity has increased a lot. So there's more of a need for more food. So how do we keep an eye on knowing that we're just eating to nourish the body in times like that where the physical activity has increased so that we're not being in immoderate eating, but we're still meeting our caloric requirements? Sure. The way that you manage this is you maintain the present moment, you know, awareness and being in the present moment, and you eat until the hunger pains are gone. You're not interested in going beyond that where you're just gorging and gorging and gorging. So where you feel full, uh, where the body feels full, that's where you know, okay, I'm done eating here. But you're right, you know, your caloric intake and what you need is going to go up and down. It's impermanent. And one reason why people say the Buddha only ate one time during his lifetime is because they say that the food had a lot more calories during his lifetime. So like the broccoli that was growing 2,500 years ago versus the broccoli that's grown now. Back then, people say, okay, the soil was richer, the water was more pure, the environment was more pure. So that particular broccoli maybe had more calories. And then also you think about the activity level of a roaming aesthetic who's 
meditating for a good amount of the time of their day and they're teaching kind of sitting in one place they're a little bit more sedentary but then there's certain times where he would walk long distances as well so he needed to adjust and modulate his food as well but what you do is you just don't overeat where you've got this big bulging stomach and you're just gorging what this helps you to do is to not eat out of emotions oftentimes if we aren't aware of the food that we're eating and we don't eat in moderation if you're feeling sad or lonely or bored someone might turn to eating as a way to eliminate the loneliness the boredom or the sadness or the sorrow not realizing what they're doing is they're just turning to the sense base of the tongue to try to get these pleasant feelings because an untrained mind when they're feeling painful feelings the only way that they know how to get rid of that is to long for pleasant feelings and oftentimes it's food that people will turn to in order to get to those pleasant feelings but that's all part of the problem is that if we feel painful feelings of sorrow or boredom or loneliness then turning to food to get to pleasant feelings isn't going to solve the problem. So if you understand to eat in moderation and that you're only eating to maintain the health and nourishment of the physical body, then when you experience painful feelings of sorrow or boredom or loneliness or whatever else might be in there, then you know turning to food isn't the answer here. The real answer is to get rid of the craving desire attachment. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, that appears to be all the questions that we have for this chapter. All right, move on to the next one. Okay, um, let's go to Donnie for reading chapter 32. Thanks, Parvinda. Taints to be abandoned by restraining. What taints, monk, should be abandoned by restraining? Here a monk, reflecting wisely, decides with the eye sense base restrained, the ear sense base restrained, the nose sense base restrained, the tongue sense base restrained, body sense base restraint, the mind sense base restraint. While taints, frustration, and unrest or anxiety might arrest in one who resides with the eyes sense base unrestrained, the ear sense base unrestrained, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind sense base unrestrained, there are no taints, frustration, or unrest, anxiety in one who resides with the sense basis restraint. These are called the things that should be abandoned by restraining. All right. Thank you, Donnie. So here, what a taint is, is it's a pollution of mind. Specifically, there's 10 taints or 10 fetters that the Buddha taught to eliminate from the mind in order to get to enlightenment. This is what's polluting the mind and keeping it in the unenlightened state. In these 10 fetters, there's exact antidotes or remedies to these individual taints or pollutions of mind or these fetters, this ball and chain that's keeping us trapped in the unenlightened state. One of the major taints or pollutions or fetters is what's called central desire. And these sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind is what the mind's longing through. So the Buddha is here explaining that you need to restrain these and pull them back. That's what you're doing when you when you're at the mall, if you're looking around and you see this handsome man or 
this beautiful woman and your eyes are like, whoa, look at that. That's the mind craving through the eyes to look at this beautiful woman or this handsome man. And where you see the mind doing that, you've got to pull it back. You've got to restrain it. Or you're walking down the street and you're seeing all these restaurants and this wonderful, amazing food. Maybe you just ate like 30 minutes ago or an hour ago and you're like, oh my goodness, I I want to eat that so bad. That's the mind longing through the tongue, right? There's these different sense bases that the mind is going to long through. And what the Buddha is saying here is restrain the mind from that, pull it back. And when you can restrain the mind and have this discipline, the Buddha is saying, okay, there's no pollution there that's causing this frustration or this anxiety. Because as long as the mind is longing through these sense bases, sometimes it's going to get what it wants and it's going to get those conditioned pleasant feelings. But other times it's not going to get what it wants because of impermanence. And that's where the frustration is going to arise. That's where the unrest or the anxiety is going to arise. So as long as you allow the mind to long through these sense bases for pleasant feelings with this craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing, strong eagerness, you're not going to be able to satisfy that permanently. So therefore you're going to end up with these painful feelings. So the answer or the solution is to restrain the mind and pull it back when you see it doing those kind of things. You're still going to need to eat. You're still going to need to do different things in the world, but you can do that without craving desire attachment. What questions do you guys have here? Um, It does not appear that we have any questions on this chapter, sir. Okay. And by the way, in this chapter, I put in the description from me, the 10 fetters, and we're going to be covering this in the group learning program to a certain degree on next Sunday, not tomorrow, but the following Sunday. And I've also covered this recently in the group learning program. So you can actually look at the recording on that and understand what each one of these 10 fetters are and the antidotes as well. All right. Chapter 33. Okay. Let's go to Allie to read chapter 33. Thanks to be an abandoned by removing. What thing, mom, should be abandoned by removing? Here a monk reflecting wisely, do not tolerate an arisen thought of sensual desire. He abandoned it, remove it, does away with it, and obliterate it. He does not tolerate an arisen thought of ill will, thought of cruelty, evil, and wholesome state, he abandoned, removed them, does away with them, and obliterated. Why think frustration and unrest anxiety might arise in one who does not remove these thoughts? There are no things, frustration and unrest anxiety in one who removes them. These are called the things that should be abandoned by removing. All right. Thank you, Ali. So here, once again, taints or that pollution of mind, the the fetters is what the Buddha is talking about. But specifically, he goes into these three, I think it's three here that he talks about, central desire, ill will, and cruelty. These relate to the step of the Eightfold Path that's called right intention. In right intention, he teaches three aspects to the right intention or the right thought or the right thinking that we need to develop in order to progress through the path to enlightenment until we are able to fully 
perfect each step of the Eightfold Path, moving the mind to enlightenment. He talks about the intention of renunciation or relinquishment or letting go. That's related to central desire, eliminating central desire. And then he talks about the intention of non-ill will or practicing goodwill. And then he talks about the intention of harmlessness. That's eliminating this thought of cruelty. If we're practicing harmlessness or the intention of harmlessness, then we've eliminated that thought of cruelty. So here he's saying that we need to remove all three of these things. And the way that you do that is through practicing right intention and training the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation to eliminate central desire and practicing generosity and restraining the mind and pulling it back, cutting it off when you see it longing through these sense bases. So that helps to eliminate the central desire. The ill will gets eliminated by practicing loving kindness meditation. And then as you practice that in meditation, then in daily life, you go out into the world and you practice being polite, kind, friendly, respectful through your intentions, your speech and your actions with all beings. This helps you to not only eliminate ill will, but it also helps you to eliminate this cruelty and this harmfulness, right? Being harmful to other beings. So practicing loving kindness and also practicing compassion. Loving kindness is this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And compassion is concern for the misfortune of others. So we cultivate these in meditation to uproot this ill will and this cruelty. And then we are practicing now this loving kindness and compassion in our daily life towards all other beings. And this is what removes these pollutions of mind. And now when we remove those pollutions of mind, the Buddha is saying, okay, you're not going to experience frustration. You're not going to experience this unrest or this anxiety because you've removed these things from the mind. And in reality, you need to remove all 10 of the fetters to get to enlightenment. But the Buddha is specifically talking about frustration here as part of this particular teaching. But you can also experience lesser versions of the various discontent feelings that come up in the mind. And when you eliminate all 10 fetters, then you will no longer experience any discontent in this. The mind will be completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently for the rest of your life. But here he's really honing in on these three, specifically connecting it over to right intention. You can see that connection if you understand what right intention is as part of the Eightfold Path. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Sir, um, to double check understanding of this, as you know, the, the mind used to have a lot of anxiety uh, to the level of panic attacks and being unable to actually physically do certain things in life. So is this saying that because of bringing my, my practice closer to the middle and removing thoughts of ill will and unwholesome states and practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, are those two things why there's been such a decrease in the level of anxiety experience, sir? Yes, when you're eliminating these pollutions of mind, then you're going to see a decrease in discontentedness. And when they're ultimately eliminated 100%, that's where you won't see any discontentedness whatsoever. This is where in modern society, 
we think that anxiety or stress or anger, these are the things we oftentimes consider them a mental illness and people are told that there's a defect in the brain. But when you deeply learn and practice the Buddhist teachings, you can see that this is not actually true. All that's really transpiring is there's this untrained mind. And because the mind isn't disciplined and it has these pollutions in there, that the mind gets shaken up and it experiences anxiety and experiences other discontent feelings. And when you uproot these pollutions or these taints and you eliminate them from the mind, then the mind comes into this middle way where it's now stable and steady and you've got this discipline over the mind and you won't experience any anxiety at all. You know, right now you're experiencing a diminishing amount of anxiety. You've been practicing about a year and a half, I think, with me and I know you were practicing before that. But now you're really getting the Buddhist teachings and you're able to see these more significant improvements because you're studying with the words of the Buddha and that progress continuing to do what you're doing. You'll see that progress continue where if you ultimately get to enlightenment, there'll be no stress, no anxiety, no frustration, not even the slightest annoyance in the mind. And it's through completely developing the mind and training the mind through the entire Eightfold Path. You can't just say that it's just breathing mindfulness meditation or it's just generosity or it's just right intention or it's just right speech but it's this comprehensive approach to training the mind through this entire path to enlightenment thank you sir you're welcome that appears to be all the questions we have on this chapter sir all right we'll go to chapter 34. benefit when taints abandoned monks When for a monk, the taints that should be abandoned by restraining have been abandoned by restraining. When the taints that should be abandoned by removing have been been abandoned by removing, then he is called a monk who resides restrained with the restraint of all the taints. He has severed craving, flung off the fetters, and with the complete elimination of conceit, he has made an end of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Miranda. This is describing somebody who's gotten to enlightenment and the Buddha describes it in different ways and different approaches and different wording. But here he's specifically talking about severing craving, which is the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, the elimination or the flinging off, which I I really like that language, you know, flinging off the fetters, which are those 10 fetters, 10 individual pollutions of mind. And one of those pollutions is conceit. So with the complete elimination of conceit or arrogance or pride, judging others, measuring and comparing each other, having done all of these things, then the Buddha says, okay, this is the end of discontentedness. So by eliminating the 10 fetters, the mind is completely purified. The mind has eliminated discontentedness. It's experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Never again will it ever experience any discontentedness. And there won't be rebirth either, that you won't come back into the world and experience this all over again, countless, countless times as we've been doing in the past. So once you get to the end of discontentedness, you'll know, you know, a year, two years, three years, you haven't had any discontentedness whatsoever. The mind's just been completely peaceful, calm, serene, content, joyful, 
nothing shakes it up. Things that in the past would have shaken up the mind with anger and frustration, none of that arises whatsoever because all this pollution of mind is gone. And you'll know that you made it to enlightenment and the mind is enlightened. But I don't suggest you ever convince yourself of that because that's where the conceit can kind of come back in. And if there's conceit there, then the mind isn't enlightened. Because if there's arrogance and pride, then the mind's not enlightened. And oftentimes, if we convince the mind that it's enlightened, there can be this complacency. So you might go three months or six months of a lot of peacefulness in the mind, a lot of joy in the mind. And if you start convincing yourself that you're enlightened, then boom, something happens. And it's like, ah, you're not enlightened as you thought you were, or were you? You know, you were going around thinking you were Mr. Big Shot for three months or six months, and here comes some discontentedness. So when you observe that the mind is starting to get these longer and longer windows of peacefulness and joyfulness in the mind, three months, six months, just, okay, things are headed in the right direction. Don't try to convince yourself that you're enlightened or anything like that. Just keep moving along. They have this saying, you know, before enlightenment, you know, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water, right? Just keep doing all the normal things that you're doing as part of your life. Because if you're getting these longer and longer windows of peacefulness and joyfulness in the mind, then your life is becoming really well sorted out. There's a lot of peacefulness going on on a daily basis. And any kind of arrogance or pride that comes in or any kind of complacency is just going to shake that up. So just keep doing the things that you're doing and then observe this time getting longer and longer and longer. And there can be this little ickiness that comes in. There can be these little annoyances every once in a while. But then the mind's just dealing with that. They're very minimal and you're getting these continuous longer periods of peacefulness in the mind. And this is that light flickering that I call it, that, you know, when you turn on a light, it might flicker for a while before it comes on and it's completely on. So you'll get these long periods of time, maybe three months or six months where you think the light's on, but then you'll get these, you know, ickiness or this annoyance. And it's like, oh, the mind's not enlightened yet. So then you just deal with that, get over it, move to the next thing. And then now the light feels like it's back on. And you'll see this flickering. You'll get these glimpses of what enlightenment is like before you get that one year, two year, three years of no discontentedness whatsoever. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, it appears we don't have any questions on this chapter, sir. All right. So we'll move to the next one, which is chapter 35. Okay. Let's go to Jan to read chapter 35. Thank you, Miranda. Spelling the contact. Monks, consciousness comes to be based on two things. And how, monks, does consciousness come to be based on two things? Consciousness is based on the eye and forms. There arises eye consciousness. The eye is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Forms are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Thus, these two things are moving and fluctuating impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Eye consciousness is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of eye consciousness is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When monks, eye consciousness has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? The meeting, the encounter, the combining of these three things is called eye contact. Eye contact, too, is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. 
The cause and condition for the arising of eye contact is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When, monks, eye contact has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? Contacted monks, one feels contacted, one craves contacted, one perceives. Thus, these things too are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Similar discourses were cited in the case of ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. In dependence on the ear and sounds, there arises ear consciousness. In dependence on the nose and odors, there arises nose consciousness. In dependence on the tongue and flavors, there arises tongue consciousness. In dependence on the body and physical objects, there arises body consciousness. In dependence on the mind and mental objects, there arises mind consciousness. The ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Mental objects are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Thus, two things are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Mind consciousness is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of mind consciousness is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When monks, mind consciousness has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? The meeting, the encounter, the combining of these three things is called mind contact. Mind contact too is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of mind contact is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When monks, mind contact has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? Contacted monks, one feels, contacted one craves, contacted one perceives. Thus, these things too are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. It is in such a way, monks, that consciousness comes to be based on two things. All right. Thank you, Jan. So let me explain this and then help you understand how you can use it in your day-to-day life in terms of what the Buddha is calling dispelling contact, okay? So first he's saying that there's this I and there's these forms. This is the internal sense base and the external sense base. When the I sees a form, then there's I consciousness, which is the third thing, which is the awareness in the mind that the I has seen a certain form. So the I sees an agreeable form or sees a disagreeable form. The mind is aware of that, which he's calling I consciousness. And this is then called contact. So these three things is contact. So it happens not only with the eyes, it also happens with the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact in the mind. There's these six things that are internal sense bases. And then there's these six things that are external. And when the mind becomes aware of those, then there's certain feelings that occur. There's certain cravings that occur. And then the mind longs and yearns for this to be permanent. But what the Buddha is explaining to you is all of this is impermanent. The eye seeing a certain form and the awareness of that and the contact that you're going to have with this form is impermanent. Hearing a certain sound and the awareness that 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 sound is there 
and the contact with that sound is impermanent. These are all things that you can verify for yourself. You can independently verify this. Certain odors that you experience, whether it's a pleasurable odor, agreeable odor, or a disagreeable odor, that there's the nose, then there's the odor, then there's the awareness that that odor is there, and there's some contact. All of these things are impermanent. Okay, that's what he's saying here. The way that you use this is that whenever you're in a situation and you observe something through the eyes or you hear something in the ears or the nose, the tongue, all of these six sense bases, and you feel the mind longing or even you don't feel the mind longing, just know that this is impermanent. So this is how you get ahead of the curve. So say that you're on this drive, you pull up to this mountain and you get out and you're like, oh my goodness, look at this amazing view. Right away, you should think this is impermanent. Let me just enjoy it for what it is. Let me look around. Let me enjoy it. Let me take some pictures, whatever it is. But just know that it's impermanent and you're going to need to get in the car at some point and you're going to leave. Whereas if you get out, you're like, oh, my goodness, this is so amazing. I could just stay here for days and days and days. This is the most outstanding view that I've ever seen. I wish I could just stay here forever. This is the mind craving permanence because it has this feeling of observing this beautiful view and now the mind is craving for it to be permanent. So what you do is you get ahead of that whole curve because the Buddha is explaining to you that all these things you're coming in contact with are impermanent. So you can enjoy it for the moment and then just don't allow the mind to cling to it. That's how you train the mind through these teachings is that the Buddha is alerting you to this natural law of existence. He's guiding you. He's explaining to you that all these things you come in contact with are impermanent. So now with that wisdom, what you do is whenever you're involved in anything that you're involved in, you just always acknowledge that you know it's impermanent. And therefore, by recognizing that in the mind up front, then that kind of protects the mind so that the mind doesn't try to cling to it. And this is how you can use a teaching like this to protect the mind. And then as you do that multiple times, eventually you don't have to consciously tell the mind that all the time because the mind just automatically knows not to ever cling. But as you're developing your practice, you might have to consciously tell the mind that multiple times before it finally gets it and it doesn't cling anymore. So getting ahead of the craving, knowing that there's these feelings that are going to arise. Then as soon as there's these feelings, then the mind's going to start craving that and wanting it to be permanent. You get way ahead of that. And where you see the bodily sensations arising, you cut that off and let it go. And you say, hey, this is impermanent. Let me just enjoy it for the moment. And then it's going to be over. And that's how you can protect the mind. And this is how you dispel contact. So when you have contact through the six sense spaces, you don't allow the mind to grab onto it and cling onto it, wanting it to be permanent. What questions do you have on this chapter? Um, it does not appear there are any questions on this chapter, sir. All right. So we'll go to chapter 36. Okay. Um, let's go to Donnie to read chapter 36. Hey, Brenda. By way of right intention, monks, Whatever a monk frequently thinks and reflects upon, that will become the disposition of his mind. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of sensual desire, he has abandoned the thought of renunciation or letting go to cultivate the thought of sensual desire 
and then his mind leans to thoughts of sensual desire. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of ill will, he has abandoned the thought of non-ill will to cultivate the thought of ill will, and then his mind leans to thoughts of ill will. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of cruelty, he has abandoned the thought of harmlessness to cultivate the thought of cruelty, and then his mind leans to thoughts of cruelty. Just as the last month of the rainy season in the autumn, when the crops thicken, a cattle worker would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be beaten, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if he let them stray into the crops. So, too, I saw in unwholesome states danger, dishonor, and defilement, and in wholesome states the benefit of renunciation or letting go, the aspect of cleansing. As I recite thus, diligent, dedicated, and determined, a thought of renunciation or letting go arouses me. A thought of non-ill will arose in me. A thought of harmlessness arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of renunciation or letting go has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own harm or to others' harm or to the harm of both. He aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties and lead to enlightenment. If I think and reflect upon this thought even for what a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I see night and day. I see nothing to fear from it. But with excessive thinking and reflection, I might tire the body. And when the body is tired, the mind becomes disturbed. And when the mind is disturbed, it is far from concentration. So I steadied the mind internally, widened it, brought it to singleness, singleness and concentrated it. Why is that? so that the mind should not be disturbed. Monks, whatever a monk frequently thinks and reflects upon, that will become the disposition of his mind. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of renunciation or letting go, he has abandoned the thought of sexual desire to cultivate the thought of renunciation or letting go, and then his mind leads to thoughts of renunciation or letting go. If he thinks frequently, frequently thinks and reflects upon the thoughts of non-ill will, he has abandoned the thought of ill will to cultivate the thought of non-ill will, and then his mind leans to thoughts of non-ill will. If he frequently thinks and reflects upon thoughts of harmlessness, he has abandoned the thought of cruelty to cultivate the thought of harmlessness, and then his mind leans to thought of harmlessness. Just as in the last month of the hot season, when the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cattle worker will guide his cows while staying at the root of a tree or out in the open. Since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there, so too there was a need for me only to be mindful that these states were there. All right. Thank you, Dani. So here, the Buddha is once again talking about right intention which is part of the full path that second step of the full path 
which is the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness. But this needs to be cultivated in the mind. And the Buddha is explaining that whatever we tend to frequently think of or that we frequently reflect upon, that's how the mind is going to be shaped, and that's the disposition of the mind. So if we allow the thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty to arise in the mind, and we don't do anything about it, then the mind's going to have a tendency to have sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty in the mind. But instead, if when we observe those things, we cut them off and we let them go, we eliminate them, we instead reflect on the thought of renunciation, the thought of non-ill will, the thought of harmlessness, then by cultivating the mind in that way, then that's what the mind's going to lean towards. That's the disposition of the mind, that you're interested in eliminating this central desire. You're interested in eliminating this ill will. You're interested in eliminating this cruelty by practicing renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. And he connects it to cattle because he taught a lot of people, you know, in the rural villages and stuff, and they were very familiar with cattle workers and so forth. And he talks about this cattle worker who is, you know, kind of minding the herd of cows, and they need to constantly be aware of these cows when the crops are out and the crops are bearing and close to, to harvest. He needs to ensure that the cows are not eating this food because if the cows trample over the crops of the farmers, that cattle worker is going to get into a lot of trouble. He's going to have a lot of problems. So same thing is if we allow sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty to reside in the mind, there's going to be a lot of danger. There's going to be a lot of harm. There's going to be a lot of struggles. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here. But he says what he did as part of his path to enlightenment is he remained diligent, dedicated, and determined to arise this renunciation or letting go this thought of non-ill will and this thought of harmlessness. And by arising that and training the mind and cultivating that, that's always there. Instead of being constantly aware and worried about whether these cows are going to damage the crops of the farmers because of the danger involved there, instead it's like, okay, once these thoughts are cultivated that there's this intention of renunciation, this intention of non-ill will and this intention of harmlessness, now the, the cattle worker can be at ease. It's like the farmers have taken the crops in and now the cows can kind of roam and he can just sit down and relax by the tree knowing that the cows are where they are, that they're not going to cause any harm. Same way as when you cultivate renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness, you can reside at ease because you know that any unwholesome states that arise you're going to practice renunciation or letting go. You're practicing non-ill will or loving kindness in all situations that you're interacting with people. And you're practicing this harmlessness amongst all people. And when you're practicing this intention of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness, now your speech and your actions and your livelihood, your moral conduct is going to emanate from that. And now you can be at ease because you know you're not causing harm to anyone in the world. The mind it doesn't need to be shaken up. So when you go this extended period of time, a year, two years, three years of cultivating this Eightfold Path, particularly what he's talking about here is right intention. You can get to the point where the mind is at ease. You realize that you're not causing any harm to anyone in the world. 
and no harm is coming back to you. And you see that over extended periods of time. And this is where your life becomes very peaceful and the mind becomes very peaceful because you're now practicing these wholesome qualities. And you can be at ease, much like this cattle worker that doesn't have to be worried about his cows because there's no crops that his cows can just kind of roam freely, so to speak. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Is this also speaking to right effort a little bit? Because we have to put effort into arising wholesome thoughts and um, cutting off unwholesome thoughts. So when reading this, the mind just kind of goes to, okay, well, this is also right effort to have right intention. Yes, whenever you see talking about diligence and dedication and determination, there's going to be a certain amount of right effort involved because when you're cultivating the wholesome and you're eliminating the unwholesome, there needs to be right effort there in order to accomplish that. And then is this also speaking here about having our practice be in the middle, not to not excessively trying, but not being negligent? just because of the, the part where he says that um, excessive thinking and reflection, I might tire the body and that paragraph there, is that talking about keeping our practice in the middle, sir? Exactly. Because if there's craving, desire, attachment, like I want to get to enlightenment so badly, or I want to get rid of these unwholesome qualities, or I want to cultivate these wholesome qualities, that's the craving, desire, attachment. And it's going to cause this excessive thinking, and it's going to not only tire the mind, but it's going to tire the body. But then also, if there's this complacency where there's lack of dedication, determination, and diligence, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment either. So that's that middle, the dedication, the determination, the diligence that you stay actively involved in working towards the goal as an objective and as an interest. You're aspiring to eliminate this unwholesome qualities and you're aspiring to cultivate these wholesome qualities and you know that it's going to be a certain journey. It's going to take multiple years. It's not going to be just one month or one week of getting to enlightenment, but it's going to involve a developing a life practice. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't appear there are any more questions on this chapter, sir. All right. So we'll go to chapter 37. This one's a pretty long one. About four pages long. Who's planning to read that? Um, Abby was set to read chapter 37. I didn't mention to you before class, Miranda, that I was going to suggest that I read this one because it's so long and he's talking about so many different things that I was thinking that maybe I should read it so that I can read a little bit, teach a little bit, read a little bit, teach a little bit. But if Ali, if you would like to read it, you're more than welcome. No, I'm, I'm good with that. Thank you. Um, Teacher David, okay. please do read. Okay, I'll go ahead and read a little bit, then I'll teach and read a little bit and teach because there's a lot of different things that the Buddha is talking about here. So the title of the chapter is One Who Dismantles, Not Builds Up, Abandons and Not Clings to the Five Aggregates. So the five aggregates are what we call form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. These are the five things that the Buddha describes that a living being is going to have these five things. A living being is going to have physical form. They're going to have feelings. 
They're going to have perceptions, which perceptions are like the way things seem or the way you believe things to be in the world. Then there's volitional formations, which are choices and decisions. And then there's going to be a consciousness, which is the mind. So as you know, human beings have physical form. We have feelings. We have certain perceptions, the way things seem to be in the world. We have volitional formations or choices and decisions. And we have a consciousness. We have a mind. And animals have these as well. And hell beings, well, they don't have physical form, but they have formless, afflicted spirits and heavenly beings as well, right? But in terms of the five aggregates, we see those in animals and humans in terms of the physical form. But something like a tree or a plant, like a pumpkin or a broccoli or something like this, they have physical form, but they don't have feelings. They don't have perceptions. Like one broccoli plant's not looking at the other broccoli plant and like, you know, I think your your leaves are too green. You know, why, why are your leaves so green? They shouldn't be that green. You know, they don't have certain opinions and views of another plant or they're not thinking like, you know, the sun's kind of bright today. You know, I think it's too bright. Um, And they also can't make choices or decisions or these volitional formations. A broccoli plant can't decide that I'm going to pick myself up, make this choice or decision and, you know, walk 100 feet or 100 meters or 100 yards down the road and replant myself. A broccoli plant can't make those decisions. And there's no consciousness. There's no mind there. So the Buddha here talking about the five aggregates are these five things, form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations and consciousness. This is what determines what a living being is. So he says, monks, those aesthetics and Brahmins who recollect or recall and remember their countless past lives, all recollect the five aggregates subject to clinging or a certain one of them, right? So in order for there to be existence in a past life, there would need to be these five aggregates. What five? When recollecting thus, monks, I had such form in the past. It is just form that one recollects. When recollecting, I had such feeling in the past. It is just feeling that one recollects. When recollecting, I had such a perception in the past. It is just perception that one recollects. When recollecting, I had such volitional formations, choices, decisions in the past. It is just volitional formations that one recollects. When recollecting, I had such consciousness in the past. It is just consciousness that one recollects. And why, monks, do you call it form? It is deformed, monks. Therefore, it is called form. Deformed by what? Deformed by cold, deformed by heat, deformed by hunger, deformed by thirst, deformed by contact with flies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and serpents. It is deformed, monks. Therefore, it is called form. So this physical form that the Buddha is talking about as part of the five aggregates, he's saying, okay, I call it form because essentially it's impermanent. It's going to be deformed by cold, heat, hunger, thirst, contact with these flies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and serpents. So that's why he calls it form because it can be deformed. It's this physical form of the body. And why, monks, do you call it feeling? It feels, monks, therefore it is called feeling. And what does it feel? It feels pleasure. It feels pain. 
It feels neither pain nor pleasure. It feels monks, therefore it is called feeling. So this second aggregate of feeling, he's describing discontentedness, conditioned pleasant feelings, conditioned painful feelings, and conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So pleasurable feelings or pleasant feelings are like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. Painful feelings are things like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. Neither painful nor pleasant. I usually put boredom and loneliness in there. Some people say that's kind of painful for them. But maybe shyness, if you think about shyness. It's not painful. It's not pleasurable. Or if you're on a bus and somebody that you don't know comes and sits really, really close to you. Maybe their body's touching your body. It's not painful. It's not pleasurable. It's neither painful nor pleasure. It's kind of uncomfortable is what that is. So a being who has this aggregate of feeling, they're going to experience in the unenlightened state these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. But by the time a being gets to enlightenment, they're no longer experiencing these conditioned feelings anymore. The mind is just peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy all the time. And why, monks, do you call it perception? It perceives, monks, therefore it is called perception. And what does it perceive? It perceives blue, it perceives yellow, it perceives red, it perceives white, it perceives, monks, therefore it is called perception. So what a perception is, is it's a belief or an opinion of the way things seem to be. So if you have a perception about what happened, you don't know whether it's true or false. You just have an opinion or a belief about something that's occurred. And when we cling to any of these five aggregates, including our perceptions, that's where we experience discontentedness. Because if you're clinging to your perceptions, your opinions and beliefs, that's where you are then going to then be experiencing discontentedness because you're clinging to the way things seem to be. The way that your opinions and beliefs are, you're clinging to these and you don't know whether they're true or false. So perception is your opinions and beliefs of the way things seem to be. And why, monks, do you call them volitional formations? They construct the conditioned, monks, Therefore, they are called volitional formations, choices, decisions. And what is the conditioned that they construct? They construct conditioned form as form. They construct conditioned feeling as feeling. They construct conditioned perception as perception. They construct conditioned volitional formations as volitional formations. They construct conditioned consciousness as consciousness. They construct the conditioned monks. Therefore, they are called volitional formations, choices, decisions. There's other places in the Buddhist teachings where he describes volitional formations as well. What volitional formations are is choices or decisions. If you're making choices and decisions now about something that's going to happen three months from now, and then you hold on and you cling to that choice and decision, even though things have changed between now and three months from now, as long as you hold on to that volitional formation and you're unwilling to change and understand the impermanence, then by clinging to your decision, it's going to produce discontentedness in the mind. So what you do instead is you might have certain things you're planning to do three months from now. You might have certain decisions that you're starting to formulate about three months from now, but you don't cling to them. 
as you gain more and more insight over the next three months, be willing to change your decisions and let go of the decisions you made three months ago based on this new information that you've gotten. That's how you ensure that you're not clinging to volitional formations. And why, monks, do you call it consciousness? It recognizes monks, therefore it is called consciousness. And what does it recognize? It recognizes sour, it recognizes bitter, it recognizes pungent, it recognizes sweet, it recognizes sharp, it recognizes mild, it recognizes salty, it recognizes bland. It recognizes monks, therefore it is called consciousness. So this is the awareness of the mind. And here the Buddha is specifically talking about awareness through the tongue. But you saw in that previous chapter where he talks about eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. So the mind becomes aware of this input that's coming in through the six sense bases. And when you have this awareness of what's coming through the six sense bases, that's where there's the potential for conditioned pleasant feelings, conditioned painful feelings, conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And then when those feelings arise, there's the potential for there to be craving or desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness. So as long as the mind is clinging and holding on to this consciousness, it's one of those five aggregates, it's going to experience discontentedness. Therein, monks, the instructed noble disciple reflects thus, I am now being consumed by form. In the past, too, I was consumed by present form. If I were to seek excitement in future form, then in the future, too, I shall be consumed by form in the very same way that I am now being consumed by present form. Having reflected thus, he becomes indifferent towards past forms. He does not seek excitement in future form, and he is practicing for the distancing towards present form, for its fading away in its elimination. And then, of course, the Buddha spoke the same thing related to feelings, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. What he's getting to here is, remember when he first started talking, he was talking about somebody who is recalling their past lives and observing that they had past lives. And the Buddha is saying, okay, what you're really observing is these five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. That's what you're actually observing when you're observing past lives. And now what he's saying is, okay, you should be indifferent towards past lives or these forms or these feelings, these perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness that occurred in the past. These past lives, you should be indifferent to them because essentially those past lives don't really matter. And then he's saying you shouldn't excite in future lives and existing in the future in the cycle of rebirth. He says, you know, exciting in this future form or these future lives, that's going to keep you trapped in this cycle of rebirth because as long as you're clinging and wanting and desiring for there to be a future life, then there's craving in the mind, there's going to be future existence. So what he's suggesting that someone does is they practice for the distancing towards present form. So this present form as a human being that you are now, the Buddha is saying, okay, distance yourself from that. 
no longer see it as this is something that you're craving, you're desiring, you're wanting to exist in this physical form. Instead, start distancing the mind from that and seeing that that's problematic, that that's the real struggle, that as long as there's existence in some physical form, then there's going to be this discontentedness. There's going to be this sorrow, this sadness, this grief, this despair. So develop and cultivate the mind where you're fading away and eliminating this desire for future rebirth. That's what he's essentially getting to here in this first part. And now he's going to basically say, you know, the reason why is because all of this stuff is impermanent. That if as long as you cling to form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness, as long as you cling to these things, because they're impermanent, it's going to cause discontentedness. So what do you think, monks? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir. So here he's showing that physical form is impermanent. As long as we cling to it, there's going to be discontentedness. And as long as we think that this physical form is who I am as a person, this is myself, then there's going to be discontentedness. So he's kind of pointing to the universal truth of non-self here in this third question that he asks. Right? So this is helping the mind to recognize that this physical form is impermanent. As long as I cling to it, there's going to be discontentedness. As long as I think that this physical body is me and who I am as a person, this is mine, this I am, this is myself, then there's going to be discontentedness. So why cling to any of this stuff? And then he goes through all the other five aggregates talking about the same things. So don't cling to the feelings because they're impermanent. It's going to cause discontentedness. Those feelings that you experience in the mind, that's not who you are as a person. The perceptions, they're impermanent. Don't cling to them because it's going to cause discontentedness. You are not your perceptions, your opinions and beliefs of the way things are in the world. That's not who you are as a person. Your choices and decisions that you've made in the past, those are impermanent. If you cling to them, it's going to cause discontentedness. That's not who you are as a person. So if you chose to steal, if you chose to have sexual misconduct, if you chose to do harmful things in the past, that's not who you are as a person. Those are just decisions that you made. They're impermanent. You're beyond that now, and you can improve your decision-making going forward. And as long as you cling to it and you think that this is who you are as a person, then you're going to be discontent because of it. And the same thing about consciousness or the mind, that it's impermanent, that as long as you cling to what's going on in the mind and the mind itself, then there's going to be discontentedness. And this mind, this self-identity that's in the mind, it's not who you are as a person. It's impermanent. It's not the self. It's not who you are. Therefore, monks, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal, external, gross, or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all consciousness should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. 
this is not myself. So again, he's pointing to the universal truth of non-self, saying none of these things are who you are. These five aggregates of form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations or choices and decisions, and consciousness or the mind, this is not who you are as a person. These are just things that have come together for this existence and they're impermanent. This is called, monks, a noble disciple who dismantles and does not build up, who abandons and does not cling, who scatters and does not amass, who extinguishes and does not inflame. And what is it that he dismantles and does not build up? He dismantles form and does not build it up. He dismantles feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, and does not build it up. And what is it that he abandons and does not cling to? He abandons form and does not cling to it. He abandons feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, consciousness, and does not cling to it. And what is it that he scatters and does not amass? He scatters form and does not amass it. He scatters feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, and does not amass it. And what is it that he extinguishes and does not inflame? He extinguishes form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, consciousness. He does not inflame it. So these are things that I already talked about, about not clinging and holding on to these things. Seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple experiences fading away of strong feelings towards form, fading away of strong feelings towards feeling, fading away of strong feelings towards perception, fading away of strong feelings toward volitional formations, fading away of strong feelings toward consciousness. Experiencing fading away of strong feelings, he becomes free of strong feelings. Through freedom from strong feelings, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it's liberated. He understands, destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. So here he's talking about someone who doesn't cling to the five aggregates. Then there's this fading away of strong feelings that the discontentedness is gradually diminishing. That's what I describe it as, this discontentedness gradually diminishing. The Buddha talks about it as fading away of strong feelings and then being free from strong feelings, meaning discontentedness is eliminated. Now there's freedom from strong feelings. The mind is liberated. This is enlightenment. The mind is liberated. It's free. It no longer has these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, these conditioned feelings. It's just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. That's what I say that when you go one year, two years, three years without any discontentedness, you know that the mind is liberated because you observe that there's no more discontentedness. And once you observe that there's no more discontentedness, then you know that there's no longer going to be rebirth. Destroyed is birth. That you've lived this holy life. What had to be done has been done. You've meditated. You've practiced generosity. You've done loving kindness. You've developed your practice really well. You're practicing all those eight steps of the Eightfold Path. 
you've brought your life practice up to the point where you're always practicing right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and all the others. It's effortless for you by this time that the mind is just effortly practicing this. So what had to be done has been done. There's been this deep training of the mind. There is no more for this state of being. There's no more existence. Once the mind gets to that enlightened mental state, it's no longer going to experience this misery and pain of existence ever again. This is called, monks, a noble disciple who neither builds nor dismantles, but who resides having dismantled, who neither abandons nor clings, but who resides having abandoned, who neither scatters nor amasses, but who resides having scattered, who neither extinguishes nor inflames, but who resides having extinguished it. And what is it, monks, that he neither builds up nor dismantles, but resides having dismantled? He neither builds up nor dismantles form, but he resides having dismantled it. He neither builds nor dismantles feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, but resides having dismantled it. So dismantling the five aggregates means that you're no longer going to be reborn, that you are no longer building it up by clinging to it, that you have let go of clinging to these five aggregates. And what is it that he neither abandons nor clings to, but resides having abandoned? He neither abandons nor clings to form, but resides having abandoned it. He neither abandons nor clings to feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, but resides having abandoned it, no longer having a desire to exist in this cycle of rebirth. And what is it that he neither scatters nor amasses, but resides having scattered? He neither scatters nor amasses form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, but resides having scattered it. And what is it that he neither extinguishes nor inflames, but resides having extinguished? He neither extinguishes nor inflames form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, but resides having extinguished it. When monks, a monk is thus liberated in mind, the heavenly beings together with Indrid, Brahma, and Pajapati pay homage, respect to him from far away. Homage, respect to you, O thoroughbred man. Homage, respect to you, O highest among men. We ourselves do not directly know, dependent upon what you meditate. Okay, so what he's talking about here is that once a human being becomes liberated, the heavenly beings, along with these other beings that they respected during the lifetime of the Buddha, respect this individual for having attained enlightenment and they respect from far away you know they're not right next to you handing you a certificate but he's saying okay beings heavenly beings and these other beings respect someone who's purified the mind getting all the way to enlightenment and liberating the mind and the buddha is saying okay these people respect you or these beings respect you in terms of looking at you as a very high practicing individual right the buddhist describing as o thoroughbred of a man or o highest among men which is essentially like okay this is a very wholesome person is what the buddha is explaining is this person is very wholesome we ourselves do not know directly 
right? Because heavenly beings are still in existence. They haven't attained enlightenment yet. So they don't know directly what enlightenment is. So we ourselves do not know directly what enlightenment is, dependent upon what you meditate. So depending upon how you meditate and how you practice these teachings is going to determine how the mind comes into this enlightened mental state. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? It's a very long one. <laughs> um, it appears we don't have any questions on this chapter at this time, sir. Okay, I think I just saw Jan's oh, hand went up. Yes. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I do have a question about the, the, this, the discussion about making choices. Because it seems to me that we do have to make choices. You make a choice whether to walk into the path of a car or not do that, right? For example, you make a choice to eat or not eat. And so I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. I understand, I think, that the Buddha is talking about choices in a different way. But it seems after enlightenment, you still do have to make choices. Yeah, the difference is, is you're not clinging to them, right, here the title of this where the Buddha talks about not clinging to the five aggregates. When you're enlightened, there's still going to be physical form. There's a physical body, but you're not clinging to it. So, oh my goodness, I got a wrinkle. Oh my goodness, I got a gray hair. That's clinging to the five aggregates, the aggregate of form. The mind becomes discontent because you've gained a little bit of weight or you got a wrinkle or you got a gray hair. So there's still going to be physical form. There's still going to be these other aggregates there, but your mind isn't clinging to them and holding on to them. So you're still going to be making choices and decisions, but you're not clinging to them, that you're completely comfortable with letting things go and realizing that you need to make decisions in the present moment, not necessarily clinging to decisions that you've made in the past about things that are going to occur now in the present moment. Thank you. That's helpful. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Um, also, sir, uh, is it common when a practitioner begins to see past lives to at first have some kind of emotions associated with observing those? Or is that generally when one is further along the path and they aren't going to have those initial emotions when observing past lives? Yeah, you can very easily have emotions and seeing past lives because this is like proof positive that the cycle of rebirth is really true. So there can be all kinds of emotions. The important thing is, is to calm the mind, bring it to the middle and just realize what it is, is it's just the past lives. It's just the mind having these residual memories of past lives. You're not a special person. You're, you know, you don't walk around with arrogance or pride when these things occur, but if you experience those emotions, just same thing, same part of the Eightfold Path is train the mind to cut that off and let it go and just realize like, okay, wow, that's really true, that the cycle of rebirth is really true. And you can observe those past lives and know that that's what occurred. And sometimes observing past lives can actually help you understand what's going on in this life a bit better. And that can also produce a certain amount of emotion as well. That oftentimes we go through this life not knowing about our past lives and all these different things are happening. And then once we start observing past lives, it starts giving us insight and clarity of why we're experiencing the things that we're experiencing in this life. Because certain things that we experience are based on previous decisions, 
but not all, but just some. So oftentimes observing past lives can give us insight about what we're experiencing in this life. But then you've got to let that go and just continue to practice and continue to move forward with your practice. Yes, sir. That was going to be the second part of my question was, can we gain any wisdom from observing past lives? (laughs) Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm, You're welcome. Uh, It appears we have no more questions at this time. All right, so we'll move to chapter 38. Okay, let's go to Allie for chapter 38. Thank you, Miranda. See as it really is, this world becoming become a place by touch of sense afflicted, utter its own greed, whatever conceit one have, therein is instability, existing in an order, bound to existence, yet in existence it rejoices. Excitement therein is fear, and what it fear is harm. For abandoning existence, this Brahma's life is lived. Whoever ascetic or Brahma man, man have said that by existence is released from existence, all of them are and release from existence, I declare. But whatsoever ascetic or Brahman have said that by the stopping of existence, there is as a repute from existence, all such are not free from existence, I declare. It is due to the foundation that this harm is produced. By the ending of all crafting, there is no production of harm. Behold this may this many world world by ignorant afflicted come into existence and thus with what has become excited, yet from existence not released, yet all re- existence. Wherever and in whatever state they are, all are impermanent and harm and doomed to change. In one who see as it really is by perfect wisdom, the craving to exist is left. The joy not in its slating, but craving complete ending complete stopping is Nibbana, enlightenment. Thus become cool, that monk, no more reborn, no more existent. Beaten is Mara. He won the, he won the fight, escape all future existence. All right, thank you, Ali. Thank you. So thank here, you. I just took apart this teaching and I put the Buddha's words in bold 
and then I gave you an understanding of what that is because here he's speaking a little bit more removed than what he normally speaks. You know, he typically speaks, you know, utterly clear, just really straightforward, explains to you what, what he's sharing. We're here. It's a little bit more removed and having a little bit more understanding will really help you. So rather than go through and describe all of this, if you've read this, I'll just invite you to ask any questions because I go word for word and go into a really detailed description of each aspect of what the Buddha is sharing here. So I'll just open up to any questions that you guys have on this chapter, if any. Um, it's not about this chapter, but about chapter 38, sir, on Facebook. Amina asks um, this quote, by the ending of all grasping, there is no production of harm. Should we interpret this to mean that once and only after we are free from all attachments, that we can be assured to do no harm to ourselves or others? So the grasping here, by ending of all grasping, there is no production of harm. So grasping is craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness. Whenever there's craving, desire, attachment, that means there's central desire there. And a being is having certain cravings, certain selfish desires. And as long as we're grasping, as long as we're longing and yearning, as long as we're having craving, desire, attachment, then we're making decisions based on our own selfish desires. And that means that there's going to be harm that we're producing. But when we eliminate our craving, desire, attachments, and we're working towards things as a goal or an objective, then we can make decisions that are working towards our objective without this yearning and this longing. Because if there's longing and yearning, then there's going to be harm that we produce because we're only looking out for our own self-interest. But when we're just pursuing things as a goal or an interest, we can do that thing today. We can do it tomorrow. We can do it next week. We're completely content either way. We don't have this yearning and longing. So that's why there's the ending of the production of harm because you're no longer making selfish decisions only for your own self-interest. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, it does not appear that we have any more questions on this chapter, sir. All right. So you guys can read that if you haven't read it already. And if you have questions, you can put them in the Facebook group or um, you can send me a private message or schedule a personal guidance session. Okay, um, let's go to Jan for chapter 39. Thank you, Miranda. One who develops mindfulness of death diligently for the destruction of the taints. Monks, mindfulness of death, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless enlightenment, having the deathless as its conclusion. But do you monks develop mindfulness of death? When this was said, one monk said to the perfectly enlightened one, Venerable sir, I develop mindfulness of death. Monks, the mind, monk who develops mindfulness of death thus, may I live just a night and a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just half a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to eat a single alms food meal so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. 
May I live just the length of time it takes to eat half an alms food meal so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow four or five mouthfuls of food so that may attend to the perfect, perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. These are called monks who dwell carelessly. They develop mindfulness of death sluggishly for the destruction of the taints. But the monk who develops mindfulness of death thus, may I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow a single mouthful of food so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened teaching, I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to breathe out after breathing in or to breathe in after breathing out so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching, I could then accomplish much. These are called monks who reside determined. They develop mindfulness of death diligently for the destruction of the teens. Therefore monks, you should train yourself thus. We will reside determined. We will develop mindfulness of death diligently for the destruction of the taints. Thus should you train yourself. Okay, thank you, Jan. So the Buddha is talking about two different things here, but he's kind of describing them around dedication and diligence and ensuring that you know someone remains dedicated and diligent and not being complacent even in the slightest amount. But what he's talking about here with mindfulness of death or awareness of death, this is where I've talked with some of you guys where you're interested in understanding how to eliminate attachment to somebody, to a certain individual. You can develop the mindfulness of death or awareness of death of other people's death and also your own death. If you fear death, you can actually sit and reflect and contemplate death, not like you would like to kill yourself, but reflect on your own death as if you have actually died or your mom or your dad has actually died or your child or, or your life partner or somebody like this, because you're going to have to confront death of your own death and other people's death at some point in your life. It's unavoidable. You can't avoid not confronting death. And you can confront that on your own terms by going through reflection and spending 20, 30 minutes seeing what feelings arise as you're contemplating that and you're reflecting on that and then deal with that while the people are alive. Or you can try to avoid that contemplation because you fear that you have an aversion to that, but you're going to confront it at some point in the future when that person potentially dies prior to you or your own death. So if you do this on your terms, you can actually get the mind to the point where it accepts your own death and it accepts the death of others. It understands the impermanence and then you're able to eliminate the taint. The taint that the Buddha is talking about here is the sixth and seventh taint, which is desire for form to be reborn into a form realm of animal or human and desire for formless, which is the desire to be born in either the hell, afflicted spirits, or heavenly realm. You need to eliminate those two taints along with the others in order to get to enlightenment. Because if you have a desire to exist in the cycle of rebirth, then the mind has not yet eliminated the craving, desire, attachment for existence, which are those six and seventh fetters. And if you fear death, then the mind has not yet let go and realize that this is part of life and that you are going to experience death. So developing mindfulness of death or reflecting and cultivating on your own death is really helpful for you to confront 
your own death and eliminate the desire for form and desire for formless. And having mindfulness of death or reflecting on the death of others will help you to eliminate the attachment to others because you can kind of live that experience. But then after you've done that two, three, four, five, eight, ten times, and each time you emerge with less and less emotion, you emerge with no strong feelings, and you've done that multiple times, and you're like, okay, well, I've just kind of accepted this. Then you can enjoy the rest of your life with this person and living in harmony with this person because you're no longer clinging and craving for this person to be permanent. So that's what the Buddha's talking about here with mindfulness of death. But he's using that as a way to really, truly talk about diligence. He's talking about dedication, determination, and diligence. He happens to be relating it to developing mindfulness of death, but he's really talking about dedication and diligence. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Jana has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Um, Teacher David, what I'm understanding here is that the Buddha is saying, um, you know, there's, there's these monks who are um, thinking if I can just stay alive long enough to uh, attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings, you know, for this, this amount of time, you know, and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the Buddha's saying that this isn't not the way that you should be thinking. Am I, am I correct about that? It's, it seems to be comparing them to a monk who's like, let me just be able to swallow or breathe in or, you know. I, yeah, so, he, so he's talking so, about... Uh, yeah, he's talking about not allowing this complacency to set in where you're like, well, I've got the next day, I've got the next night, you know, we'll kind of get to it when we get to it, you know, kind of thing. That's where the mind can be indifferent. And he's saying, you know, let's have more dedication, let's have more diligence than this, as if like, you're only going to get this single mouthful of food, and the time that it takes me to chew that and swallow that. So let's have this dedication and diligence as if that's the only amount of time that we're going to get to learn and practice these teachings. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Where you see this, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe like a young person, 18, 20, 25 years old is like, ah, I'll get to that Buddhism stuff when I'm like 50 years old or 60 years old, you know, really delaying it. But the Buddha is even bringing it into even, you know, more timely where it's like, okay, you know, even, you know, just living, uh, may I live one night in one day, even that's too complacent is what the Buddha is basically saying. And interesting enough is if we did learn these teachings when we were 18, 20, or even younger, we would experience a much different life than we experienced having not known these teachings. Teacher David, thank you. Um, I finally have a related question. So, I find it more troubling to think at this point that, oh, geez, I might have to be reborn and go through all of this all over again than the idea of dying. Mm -hmm. So it upsets me more that I might have to do this all over again. And um, I, I don't know, I could use some guidance in this contemplation. I don't know if that's a profitable way for me to be thinking or, you know, how could I use that thought to benefit myself? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, what I did is I used the idea and the teaching and the understanding of the cycle of rebirth as motivation, as 
you know, my life, my early years were very difficult, very challenging. Of course, I had certain enjoyments and certain pleasures along the way, but there was a lot of sorrow and despair and misery along the way. And I was like, you know, I'm not interested in coming back at all. You know, this is before having observed prior lives and not knowing whether the cycle of rebirth was really true or not. And I was of the thinking of, you know, even if there's like a quarter of a percent that the Buddha was right about the cycle of rebirth and that I would need to come back and do all this all over again, and I have been doing this all over again, I'm not interested in that. So let me use it as motivation and encouragement to not be complacent. Um, So that's the way I would use it if I were you is just as motivation and encouragement, but don't have this craving like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be reborn, you know, and, and really fear that. If that's indeed what needs to occur, then that's what needs to occur. We've been reborn multiple times, countless times in the past. This is just one of countless rebirths that we've experienced in the past. If there needs to be rebirth, then so be it. Then that's the way that I would look at it. Then so be it. I'm going to do the best I can do in this life to get as close to enlightenment or enlightened that I can. And if I get to enlightenment, okay, that's that's great. If I don't, then I will have gotten as close as I can get in this life. So then my next life will be that much more improved and I will be in that much better situation in my next life. Rather than stressing or worrying about what may or may not occur in the future, instead just apply dedication and diligence right now in the present moment to accomplishing as much as you can accomplish in this path to enlightenment. And should you get to enlightenment, wonderful. If you don't, okay, that's fine too, because all this work that you're doing now is going to benefit you in a future life. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Uh, It appears those are all the questions that we have on this chapter, sir. All right, so we'll go to the last chapter for today. Okay. Um, let's go to Donnie for reading chapter 40. The supreme development of the sense basis. Now, Ananda, how is there the supreme development of the sense basis in the noble one's discipline? Here, Ananda, when a monk sees a form with the eye, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands us. There is, there has arisen in me what is agreeable, has arisen what is disagreeable, there has arisen what is both agreeable and disagreeable. But there is condition, clear, dependently arisen. This is peaceful, this is superb, that is equanimity. The agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated in him, and equanimity is established. Just as a man with good sight, having opened his eyes, might shut them, or having shut his eyes, might open them. So too concerning about, too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily and equanimity as is established. This is called the Noble One's Discipline, the supreme development of the sense basis regarding forms recognizable by the eye. Sound, just as a strong man might easily snap his fingers 
older, just as raindrops on a slightly sloping lotus leaf roll off flavor, just as a strong mind might easily spit out the ball or spit collected on the tongue of his, on the tip of his tongue, physical object, just as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm, mental objects, just as if a man were to let two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate heated for a whole day, it will quickly evaporate, vaporize and vanish. All right. Thank you, Dani. So here the Buddha is talking about something we discussed in a previous class where in the unenlightened mind, you're going to have this agreeable contact through the six sense bases. And when you have that agreeable contact, there's going to be these arising, arising of pleasant feelings. When you have disagreeable contact through the six sense bases, there's going to be this arising of painful feelings. But what the Buddha is explaining here is that you eventually get to the point where the agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated, that you no longer see things as agreeable contact or disagreeable contact, that those diminish. And then that's where equanimity or this evenness of temper is established. Because as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, there's going to be something that you agree and you say, oh, this is agreeable. This is what I want. This is what the mind craves. This is what it yearns for. This is what it longs for. This is agreeable. As long as there's craving, there's going to be this arising of conditioned, pleasant feelings. And as long as there's that, there's going to be this disagreeable as well, where there's going to be this arising of conditioned, painful feelings. But when that all diminishes and you just see it as contact, that there's some form that you see, there's some sound, there's some odor, there's some flavor, there's some physical object or mental object. All these things are just happening. They're all impermanent. You don't necessarily agree with them or disagree with them. It's just all happening and they're just all impermanent. And your mind's not craving one thing or the other. So therefore, the mind can be even keeled or this equanimity, this calmness and composure in all situations. Whereas if you heard a song that your mind had a craving to hear and this was agreeable to you, you're going to get these pleasant feelings. But then when you hear this song that you don't like and it's disagreeable to the mind, you're going to get these painful feelings. But in those situations, if you can just understand that all these things are impermanent and you don't need to see it as agreeable or disagreeable, it's just sound. It's just sound that's coming into the ear. It's impermanent. Eliminate this agreeable and disagreeable then the mind can be calm, composed. When you hear that song that your mind didn't like in the past, it's like, okay, well, it's just a song. You know, I, it's impermanent. So why do I have to sit here and allow the mind to be shaken up by it? So it's no longer disagreeable because you no longer have these craving, desire, attachments for the agreeable. And the Buddha is explaining that uh, you can eliminate this very quickly and very rapidly So just as a man with good sight, having opened his eyes, might shut them or having shut his eyes, might open them. So too, concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily. And equanimity is established. So just like the person might, you know, open their eyes and shut their eyes, The Buddha is saying that as you develop the mind and these agreeable and disagreeable are eliminated from the mind, then you can establish this equanimity. And then he talks about it here as eyesight, 
talking about the eye sense base, but he also talks about it through these other ways and these other analogies for the other sense bases. So that's what you ultimately need to get to. And you're doing that through breathing mindfulness meditation. You're doing that through practicing generosity. Those are the generalized trainings that you're practicing to train the mind to get this discipline. But then, like we talked about in this class, when you observe the mind craving through these sense bases, you restrain it. You pull it back. You cut off that craving and let it go. Don't allow the mind to long and yearn through these sense bases. And that's how you ultimately get to the point where all craving is eliminated and there's no longer this agreeable and disagreeable. So therefore, there's no longer these conditioned pleasant feelings and conditioned painful feelings. The mind is just always calm, composed, and peaceful because it doesn't want or desire or crave or yearn or long for anything specific. The mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy in any and all situations. Any questions on this chapter? Uh, There does not appear to be any questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, thank you all for joining for today's class. The next class, next Saturday, we're going to be finishing out Volume 9, which is chapters 41 through 47. So we just have seven chapters to cover next week. So you can read those ahead of time and prepare for class. And then that might elicit certain questions in the mind that you need clarity for in class. So if you read those before class, it'll be really helpful for you. And then you kind of gradually read just a chapter or two per day, and then you gradually implement those teachings into your life. And then we talk about them here. So you kind of have a week of digesting them and really sitting with those teachings rather than just, you know, a couple of hours like we spend in class. So next week on Saturday, we'll be in chapters 41 through 47, and then we'll move into the next book, which will be volume 10 on the subsequent class. Tomorrow in the group learning program, which will be Sunday, we're going to be in chapter two of volume one, which is titled, Why Study Gautama Buddha's Teachings? So there you can read what I shared in terms of why I feel someone should study Gautama Buddha's teachings. And then tomorrow we're gonna have a group discussion about this as part of our group learning program. And then on Wednesday, we're gonna be doing our second class of our four-part series of loving-kindness meditation. So I'm gonna be refreshing your memory about what I taught on loving-kindness meditation, and then we'll actually do a loving-kindness meditation session together. So I'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.